Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Peter Sound, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, advanced sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and the Commodore of Cocktails. Or is it the Commodore of Quarantinis these days? Of course, uh, we are social distancing, and hopefully you're cozied up to your radio. <laughs> Certainly not six feet away, but uh, we are playing the game. We've got the face masks on. We've got the hand sanitizer. We've got the uh, no uh, non-essential workers out. And that means a lot of people are not working, which is uh, really sad. Um, of course, if you have resources and you've had some time, it's a little kind of a, a vacation, if you will. And it's it's really weird because typically vacations are a week long or two weeks long. This one is perhaps two months long. So um, it's whatever you dreamed of, uh, wish you had time to do at home and organize uh, your court collection. <laughs> well, uh, you have the time and hopefully you get that done because that'll free your mind and... Uh, uh, well, the rest will follow, as they say. And when we're trying to free ourselves from stress, um, obviously money is a big stress these days. And uh, I, I, I'm one of them. Um, I'm watching my bank account dwindle and uh, with every uh, pizza I order. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I have a great family here, and I've got resources and friends, and i got plenty of wine, so that's not a problem. But there's lots of my peers and professionals and colleagues out there. The sommelier group, um, you know, we've become into the limelight here the last uh, 10, 12 years. And now we are no longer working. We are no longer able to communicate um, our education, share our passion for wine. And uh, obviously we're not working. So there are some cool cats out there, of course. Um, uh, and I've got uh, uh, John McDaniel, who is, uh, I think he's in Chicago. He is, um, well, helping spearhead the United Sommelier Foundation. And this is an organization that is solely nonprofit. This is a group of volunteers. Uh, I'm on the board. We are trying to generate funds to help disperse to our comrades. And uh, we want to make sure that these um, these people can pursue their passion and continue to uh, um, serve the public uh, in restaurants and, of course, serve wine. So, John McDaniel, hey, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, I'm here in Chicago and certainly wish that I was uh in better weather, like in Seattle or Southern California or something like that today, for sure. We've had a great week. Uh, it's kind of odd because uh, I got a tan in April. That never happens. <laughs> you know, it's global <laughs> warming when Seattleites can get a tan in April. Uh, well, um, so tell me about you, John McDaniel. I know we just chatted on the phone for a brief conference call last week, and uh, we had the common friend of Chris Norman and Eric Siegelbaum. But tell me about John McDaniel. Yeah, so I've uh, been in the wine business for 16 years now and have basically had every possible job that you can have. Uh, I started in uh, the retail world in Washington, D.C., been a distributor, importer. I've lived in Italy. I was the beverage director for the World Cup when it was in South Africa in 2010. Oh, wow. Lived in uh, Santa Barbara and actually started my own wine label, so I make wine as well. I've been doing that for about 10 years uh, and been here in Chicago about eight years, uh, mostly in the restaurant world. Uh, I had my own restaurant that was... Uh, a complete disaster, uh, and then about two years ago, I uh, started my own consulting company called Second City Soil, uh, after oh. Chicago being the second city. Right. Uh, so I work with wineries, trade organizations, global entities on marketing, sales, education, kind of a, a little bit of everything. So um, I'm 
traveling a lot, or at least I used to be traveling a lot. Yeah, right. Uh, just h- helping uh, helping everyone do better in the world of wine and uh, getting attention where it needs to go. So uh, well, that's, that's quite that's a, a version anyway. that's quite a variety of experiences. So South Cup, uh, or the World Cup in South Africa, was that in Joburg or Cape Town? Everywhere. So I moved. I moved all over the place. It was basically, uh, you know, the country of South Africa thought that everyone was going to come down and eat and drink South African, and then they realized that Italians just want to drink Peroni, and uh, so it was uh, basically a lot of really quick uh, global work and then uh, moving a lot of refrigerated trucks uh, around the country. But got to see a lot of games, and it was uh, a little bit down there for about nine months. It was awesome. So fun. Ben, love that country, and uh, hopefully they are doing well as well. So let's talk about this idea, the United Sommelier Foundation. Whose idea was this? So it really started with uh, Christy Norman. So she's, uh, um, or at least was, uh, a sommelier at the Spago in Beverly Hills. And Chris Blanchard, uh, who is a master sommelier uh, based in Napa Valley. Yeah. Uh, and really, it was a, a late-night text, from what I understand, uh, <laughs> kind of between uh, the two of them. Uh, and then it, uh, it really started as a GoFundMe page. Uh, and then uh, Christy, you know, I've uh, you know worked with her on some projects and invited her to uh, some events that I've done in the past. And uh, she, you know, brought me into it as well. And, you know, the one thing that, you know, I really wanted to bring to this was, not just have it be a temporary solution for related to uh, coronavirus, and obviously uh, there's a lot of need there. But when you look at the wine industry, you know we have so many great organizations that have to do with the education of sommeliers, True. but nothing that has to do with taking care of the sommelier as a person. Um, so it's really uh, about making sure that we create uh, a long-term structure here uh, as a foundation that you know, uh, unfortunately, this is not going to be the last crisis that faces uh, the wine industry, the restaurant industry. And so, you know, in the future, our hope is that if there's a tornado, God forbid, in Nashville, uh, that we can, uh, you know, extend some help to, you know, out of work uh, wine employees uh, there as well. But that's the long term plan. Uh, Short term, it's basically how we can help uh, as many out of work sommeliers as possible with as much as we can uh, as soon as we can at this point. Fantastic. And, and you know, who ever thought we would have this much social distance or quarantine at home? I mean, I've, you know, I'm a science fiction guy, and I've thought about a lot of different things in the world. Maybe it's aliens going to destroy us. But I never thought we would be stuck in place, shelter in place kind of thing for, for this long. And so it's really been a, a true eye-opener of what the world um, has to offer, so to speak, you know, with these uh, the virus and, and how quickly a contagion can uh, be communicated because we are we are social species and of course restaurants are the epitome of socializing because everyone gathers at one spot to have someone else cook for them so um who knew but here we are congratulations on getting this idea or being part of it i know that we are volunteers and i just got on board and i'm happy to promote this uh here to our our friends in the pacific northwest so um who else is on the board i think we have cat thomas who's an advanced sommelier out of las vegas um, Eric Siegelbaum was an advanced sommelier out of Washington, D.C. Yeah, and so it's, you know, what's, what's really nice about this is that there's been so many different people from across the wine industry uh, that, you know, the reality is, as you said earlier, like, you're not in a perfect position yourself. I'm certainly not. My, my business is down 85% in 2020, but, uh, you know, we're all kind of gathering together and creating different committees. So our, our executive board is uh, nine different sommeliers from around the country, from Atlanta to Sonoma, Napa. D.C., New York, so really a a great group of people. And then we've created different uh, committees with some of those industry leaders. Uh, You know, you and I are on the fundraising committee together. There's an auction committee uh, with uh, Landon Patterson of 100 Acre, uh, and we're doing an auction 
uh, through Acker Merrill, which is a great auction house that, uh, you know, they're, they're helping kind of coordinate, you know, wineries and different organizations and collectors that maybe they can't give a financial donation, which obviously, you know, uh, money is king. But uh, if they can give some wine and we can uh, raise some money off of uh, uh, an auction. So we've set that up. So uh, it's really great to see how the industry has responded and, you know, the sommelier community is a very small community. Um, it's a very tight-knit community. And so, you know, we know I'm in Chicago, but I know, you know, some all over the country and uh, know that everybody is in need, no matter if they're in L.A. or in Miami. That's right. I know when our conference call, we talked about the the, the, the fancy restaurants in New York. And, of course, New York, Seattle, Chicago, um, L.A., San Francisco, very expensive places to live. And, of course, there was a commensurate compensation for that. But now without that, and restaurants don't have them. I mean, their restaurants are basically living week to week, um, unfortunately. But that's just the nature of the business, and we kind of thrive on that idea of uh, <laughs> live or sink, or sink or swim it is. Um, and this is a great thing. So I know there's lots of auctions out there, but this one actually affects people that you would know. And, you know, sometimes we, we love to give charity to the to the, the kids at Children's Hospital or or cancer, or, or whatever it is, um, but but there's always this sort of detachment, unless, of course, you have a family member. But here, this, these are people who are professionals who are aspiring to do one thing, and it's hard work, believe it or not, to be on your feet 10, 12 hours a day uh, and to, to, to always have that smile and deal with the public, of course. But we are just passionate about sharing what we know about wine, and it's all of, that is always such a beautiful moment, that aha moment or that smile or that, that cheers or like, wow, that they're just right. really impressed. And we want that to get continue because we are the conduit between the wineries and uh, the, the consumer uh, in many respects, whether it's a region or a, um, a chateau in France or your winery in Napa. or uh, You guys have got some wines in Illinois, don't you? Yeah, uh, we have some great sparkling <laughs> wines here. I, I'd much rather uh, you know drive drive up to Michigan uh, and oh, avoid all go. those crazy protesters and uh, go, go drink some Leland Out Peninsula or something like that. But you know, I, I think you brought a good point of, you know, there are, you know, millions of people that are in need across the country right now uh, at all sorts of different levels. And I think it's interesting when people, you know, perceive what a sommelier is and the type of individual they are, you know, they are well-dressed and well-versed and they drink really expensive wine and all those <laughs> things, you know, are true. But at the end of the day, you know, the vast majority of wine professionals that work in restaurants are hourly employees that rely on tips. And so when you look at that of when they're filing for unemployment, they can't claim their tips. It's basically on their hourly. And they're just, you know, normal restaurant workers that aren't making six figures here. They're, they're really in need. And um, as I've read through a lot of applications of people that, uh, you know, we've been uh, trying to help in funding, you know, a lot of these sommeliers are spending their life savings and any extra income that they have on education. They're trying to get, you know, trying to be an advanced sommelier and trying to, uh, you know, really hone their professional experience and education. And so when something like this happens, they really don't have the resources that they don't have that outlet to be able to, you know, survive. And that's why, you know, organizations like this are so important at this point. I know we all have, we are all, uh, as a professional, we all have a sense of pride and it's, it's, I know as a guy, it's hard to ask for directions. It's certainly hard to ask for help. Uh, and this is one of those ways that, of course, in the silence of our hearts and the uh, confines of our little office space at home, we can actually, um, oh, what is it, 
be be humble and actually, you know what? I do need some help, and I, I here's a resource to ask. And there's a couple outlets out there. Of course, in Seattle, we have something called the Plate Fund, which is helping restaurant workers overall. That was started by, yeah. by the uh, um, Howard Schultz Starbucks Foundation. Of course, lots of restaurants participated. Uh, but this is really cool because this is um, – and here's the thing. I was concerned that sommeliers were like, hey, I'll take care of my buddy over here, buddy over there. But we have a, a triple blind process to award to make awards right yeah the reality is uh you know as i as i mentioned you know sommeliers basically we kind of know everybody around the country right. uh, with how kind of intertwined it is uh and so you know we try as as much as possible to have you know our our distribution of funds be about needs so we actually uh, have someone that is involved in the organization that is not in the wine industry is not a sommelier that goes through every application we've had hundreds of applications so far and strips out any information that could be a tell. Right. So we don't know when I'm reading an application, I don't know where they work. I don't know where they live. Uh, you know, all those kind of things like, oh, I know Johnny that works at 11 Madison Park or things like that. I don't know any of that information as I am assessing need. So it's really looking at, you know, what their bills are and, you know, all those things that are about survival. And the reality is, is that, we are trying to raise funds. We are trying to help as many people as possible. This is not an outlet to pay their full rent or, right. you know, have and keep them. It's, you know, it's small grants that are basically trying to help as many sommeliers as possible. They're like Easter eggs. And, uh, well, let's talk about how people get involved. We've got about a minute left. So um, what's the website and how? what can people do? Absolutely. So the website is United Sommeliers, so plural, UnitedSommeliersFoundation.org. Uh, and there you can go see all of our amazing partner wineries and organizations that have uh, uh, donated so far and some of our endorsements. Uh, and you can donate uh, online through uh, there. It's really easy to do that. Uh, and also it gives some information on the auction that is coming up. And that'll, that's a rolling auction. So all sorts of different lots of uh, amazing old world, new world wines, uh, a lot of great things from all over the place. And it's, uh, you know, an opportunity for whether you're a collector or a wine lover or a son gave you free corkage one, uh, <laughs> you know, to kind of uh, give give back to, to people that uh, are certainly in need and, you know, they're, they're trying to survive. And so, you know, there's a lot of great ways to support your local communities. And, uh, you know, this is a way to make sure that, you know, we, if you love wine, that restaurants and, and wine people uh, can survive at this really terrible time. Fantastic. John McDaniel, congratulations, and thank you for what you're doing. United Sommeliers Foundation.org. Uh, best of luck, and I'm sure I'm happy to help. Thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. All right, good. Thank you. All right, folks, stick around. we got lots more coming up here on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. The Commute with Carlson, live and local, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m., Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, Peter Sound. Welcome back to round two. Hope you got something tasty in your glass, and if not, perhaps something tasty in your garden. I know this is uh, quarantine time, which means we should find things to do. And uh, what I love about gardens is that it, it's it's something that you you nurture. I don't have any kids, so I guess my garden could be my kids. Of course, there's a little bit of cannibalism at the end, but uh, it all goes to a good cause. And I'm really excited to speak with some peeps in uh, my home state here of Washington. I've got the lovely ladies, Venice and Belinda, of the uh, Simple Goodness Sisters. Uh, one's in Buckley, one's in Edenclaw. Uh, Venice and Belinda, welcome to Happy Hour Radio. Hey, thanks for having us. All right, I didn't say your last name because I'm assuming you're married, right? You got different last names? 
Yes, yeah, we do. Yes. <laughs> originally, yeah. our maiden name is Drilovic, which no one can pronounce or spell anyway. Ah, uh, is that Croatian? Uh, Slavic, yeah. Slavic, Slavian. yes. How about that? Uh, well, happy to speak with you. Now, um, we were chatting off air, and of course, you all went, you grew up in Kent. I used to work at the Kent Chamber of Commerce for a couple of years with the balloon glow and the golf tournament. Uh, I went to Kennedy, so I knew all about the Kent Ridge and the Kent uh, uh, Kent Lake, and uh, there's one more. But you are four years apart, so was this... Does that mean one's a freshman and a senior at the same time, or does one doesn't have to live up to the older sibling's uh, legacy? Yeah, I'm the older sister, so um, this is Denise, and we're four years apart, and so we did. She, Belinda was a freshman and I was a senior, but that was back in the olden days when um, we only had grades 10th through 12th at our high school. And so we, after elementary school, we did not go to school with each other anymore, which I actually think was a really great thing because we got to be our own people at the school um, when we were there. Very good. The same thing, my little sister was a freshman, so uh, she had to live up to, you know, Chan Man, the party man. I, <laughs> legacy that I left there. <laughs> I will uh, say, though, Benice's legacy lingered, so um, I, I still had some of that some following up to do. She well, was well known. Yeah, that's good. But they they pave the way, right? They don't give you any they don't harass you because they were probably pretty cool. At least that's the case. That's my case. Yeah, that's my story. I'm sticking with it. So ladies, Venice and Belinda, um, when did you start gardening? I started gardening when my husband and I bought our first house. Um so like two thousand and eleven. Oh wow. Okay. And then Venice? Me started gardening. Belinda is always a little bit more of a green thumb. Um, I've always loved to have animals. So we started our kind of farm adventure um, Oh, also when we bought our first house, which was probably around the same time. But um, we moved to our farm, which is in Buckley, uh, about six years ago. And so that was the first time that I decided, well, now that I have a farm, I should probably grow something. Um, and so we actually started with garlic and we raised heirloom garlic. And that's how I, we like to say that I farmed by Google, which is entirely true. Um, I had never grown anything. We did not grow up on a farm. So we're definitely first generation. And I literally Googled the most profitable thing to grow on a small farm because we have 10 acres. So definitely small in the scale of farms and um, garlic and ginseng kept popping up and so I went with garlic and we grew that for three years and that's how we started growing things here on the farm. Where does someone find heirloom garlic? Garlic is uh, Do you have to, is there a seed? Yeah, so heirloom garlic is grown from the actual um, cloves of garlic and so you usually spend quite a bit of money on seeds so I don't know what garlic goes for in the store because I never buy Three ninety nine a pound, Three ninety nine a pound. Okay, so Three ninety nine a pound is what you pay for edible garlic, but when you're looking at seed stock, you're usually looking at about twenty dollars a pound. Ah. So to get in, the garlic is a little bit spendy, but then once you're in, you get to regenerate that seed every year. So it's a good like front investment. But then you take the garlic that you grew and you devote part of it to replanting the next year, and then you sell the rest of it. And how many versions of heirloom garlic are there? I know there's many heirloom beans and, of course, heirloom tomatoes, but I've never really heard the the, the oh, category so varieties. Many. Really? So there's actually two types of garlic. There's hard nut garlic and soft nut garlic. Those are kind of two categories of garlic. And right. in each of those, 
there's like a million. <laughs> wow. So which, what was your strain or breed or heritage? We grew five different kinds of hard neck garlic and then three different kinds of soft neck garlic. But interestingly, in the store, if you just buy garlic in the store, they just call it garlic. Um, usually what you're buying is soft neck garlic. Oh, really? That is why people who are really into I I like to liken it to wine. So people who are really into garlic know garlic really well, and they like seek out their different varieties. And um, and so every year we had a garlic festival out on our farm, and wow. to my other garlic growers, and we'd have a lot of different varieties. But that's how we kind of got started, and that's also how we grew our farm following from the very beginning. Is that we um, also raised miniature goats, and so we had this garlic and goat <laughs> festival, and it was very popular, as you can imagine. Are miniature goats heritage breeds? <laughs> we just have Nigerian dwarfs, but the interesting thing about Nigerian dwarf goats is that they are miniature, but they're a dairy goat, and they have the highest percentage of butter fat content. And so if you are milking, a lot of the local goat dairies in the area actually milk uh, Nigerian dwarfs because they make cheese out of it. Oh, this is awesome. I love it. Um, all right, Belinda, what's your story, Belinda? I mean, how did you get into farming? You know, I grew something illegal, my first farming thing. <laughs> I can't imagine what that might have been. Oh, yeah. Well, you can. Uh, well, that wasn't really my entree, although we have some family members who had a similar story. Um, mine was all about wanting to eat things. I'm in love with food. I've always been very big into food and cooking, and I kind of was following that Martha Stewart um, philosophy of best-in-class ingredients, and really the best-in-class ingredients you can get are the ones you grow. If you can grow anything decent, of course, that's the challenge. So I decided I was going to be this, you know, gardener lady and um, really wanted to grow great tomatoes. So we planted our first raised bed garden at our first home. I put the tomato cages on upside down, had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and it wasn't until our aunt, who actually used to own very fields um, down in Kent, oh, yeah. and they've been sold now, but um, they used to grow a bunch of stuff, and they're total green thumbs. And she came over to my house for a party, and she's like, hey, Belinda, these are upside down. Let me show you what to do next time. So trial and error, and with the goal of just being able to eat what I grew, I just kept getting you know, more and more varieties of things, and then... Once my catering business for cocktails kind of took off, I realized that in order to get a lot of the ingredients that I wanted to include in my cocktails, I was going to need to grow them or ask my sister to grow them or find people who would because a lot of them are pretty random, obscure things that you don't exactly see at a farmer's market and certainly not a grocery store, but they're really big in the cocktail world, such as edible flowers or some more kind of obscure herbs that you might have to go to specialty stores to get, like, shiso, which is, you know, an Asian herb. Shiso leaf, yes. Yeah. Yeah, Very... so you can get them, but it's challenging. And so I was having this sourcing problem where I didn't want to have to drive all over town to oh, get yeah. everything I wanted on my menu. Well, which came first, uh, gardening or cocktailing? Gardening came first, but gardening just to eat with my family. And then gardening for scale um, definitely only came once we started the cocktail business. Then it was like, okay, we need to branch out and do some more stuff. All right. Well, uh, I certainly do enjoy cocktails, and I've been um, working. I used to work at the Rainer Club, where we were certainly farm to table before it was fashionable. Uh, of course, my chef yeah. was uh, buying things off of farmers, and that was really cool. They'd come by in, in the daytime and uh, show us their wares. And uh, you know, I didn't understand the pricing back then, but looking back, I realized that you know, being a winemaker myself, <laughs> 
a lot of a lot of work goes into what you do, and it's uh, it's certainly you have to command a price that makes it worthwhile for the endeavor. So, ladies, good sister, wait, sis, what is it? Simple goodness sisters. Simple goodness sisters. All right, how did this idea come about? That idea followed from the first. I had Happy Camper Cocktail Company first, um, where we were doing mobile bartending for events um, all over Washington and wanting to do a garden to glass concept with it because I had left my you know fancy job at Microsoft that I'd worked for six years to get. And I was like, well, if I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to do exactly what I want it to be and then see if there's a market rather than trying to be practical from the start. So There you go. The niches or the riches are in the niches, right? So garden to glass mobile bar company. And <laughs> once we did that, I was having that sourcing issue, and I asked Venice to start growing for me, and then she, you know, started adding more and more plants to her garden, but she still had the garlic field until uh, she had her daughter. And after Dayton was born, um, planting season is the exact time when Dayton was born, and she, you know, had this infant who needed a lot of care and attention, and so garlic got neglected and didn't get planted, and it all rotted. So she had this barren field, and I took advantage of it and said, you know, if you're not going to buy new seed this year, why don't you take a year off and grow for me, and then let's see if we can do something with it. And so as a farmer, you don't want to waste anything. You spend, like you said, you put a lot of work and effort into building, growing a crop, and then you don't want to just let it sit there in the fields and not get picked and used. So from there, Vinny started saying, okay, we're growing way more than you need for the events that you've got booked and the menus you've got booked. We should do something else with it and we should create like an actual product that people can take home with them and then enjoy the same kind of quality garden to glass, fresh cocktails that we had become known for and in their own homes. All right. Hey, this is a great story. Speaking with Denise and Belinda, the simple goodness sisters here in our own state of Washington, One's in Buckley, one's in Enumclaw, and they are both passionate about growing things and, of course, (laughs) mixing up some cocktails. We're going to talk more about uh, how these cocktails came to fruition when we come back for next segment on Happy Hour Radio. He's loud. He's proud. Holding nothing back. Michael Savage. The Savage Nation. Weeknights 9 to 11. Talk Radio 570 KVI. Now more KVI Want to Know Weekends. Back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, welcome back. We're having a great Saturday night. I've got a glass of Provencal Rosé, and I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying speaking with two simple goodness sisters, Venice and Belinda. Um, I had a babysitter in my youth named Belinda, and I fell in love with her, I tell you that. So Belinda's always been one of my favorite names. <laughs> I know. Uh, Belinda, we were chatting about how um, Venice was growing some specific herbs and, and plants for you to uh, craft into your cocktail recipes and others. Continue with that story. Sure. Yeah, so the main thing I wanted to have her grow was edible flowers. They're really hard to find in a farmer's market. You basically have to go direct to a farmer if you want to buy them in bulk and say, you know, here's what I'm looking for. When will they be ready? Um, Here's how many I can expect I need a week. But I wasn't going to be going through this massive amount of um, volume that would actually kind of necessitate having a contract farm do this for me. Because quickly, tell me what – I know there's nasturtiums are all edible. (laughs) 
eligible. Yep, they are. <laughs> um, are, are violets or uh, pansies? Uh, yeah, violas, the viola family. First of all, any flower needs to be grown organically to be right. edible. So sure. you don't want to just, you know, pull a viola out of a plastic tin out of nursery unless you know it's edible before you eat it. Right. But yeah, they are edible. They actually taste a little bit like wintergreen usually, violas uh-huh. do. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's kind of cool. Some edible flowers have good flavors and some don't. They're just pretty as a garnish. And really it's more about adding to the experience of the cocktail, why I use them and, you know, the prettiness of them because we do a lot of events like weddings or oh, yeah. elevated upscale dinners where you want something special in, in the drink. So nasturtiums, uh, violas, roses, lilacs. Oh, wow. Uh, you can actually grow a lot of different vegetables, let them flower, and then that flower oh, of is course. edible. Such sure. as kale flowers. Um but we have a whole kind of variety that we've expanded to, and we've started really honing down which seeds from which companies we like. So we've gotten really in the greens with it now. But at first, I just wanted something pretty to put in a glass. Makes sense. All right, keep going. Yeah, so you can actually buy, like, these edible flower packets from, like, Restaurant Depot, but you can't really predict what's going to be in them, and they're always a mix. And for my cocktails, I wanted to have really a specific sure. garnish for look, each drink that made sense with that drink. Yep. A presentation and also sometimes to play off of the flavor. So like mm. nasturtiums are spicy. They have a peppery bite. And if you put that in like a jalapeno margarita, it's delicious. Mm. And it makes sense. And it's kind of the full circle of the experience, you know. So yep. when we wanted to get these, I realized that farmers grow them as pollinators for their other plants, their vegetables and you know, fruits that they have on their farms, but they don't take the time to take them to market because they're not popular enough to warrant the labor cost. So that's where Venice, I started asking her to grow some, and then I was growing quite a bit in my garden as well. Um, a really popular one that we do, and the thing we always say we do best because it grows literally like a weed, so it takes zero effort on our part, is bachelor buttons. And that was, I think, the first thing that I asked her to grow is I wanted an entire row of bachelor buttons, like a 100-foot row of them because they were so popular and they're so easy to use in drinks. And as a cocktail caterer, I'm on the road, and so they travel really nicely, which is really important for me. Fantastic. Um, I'm curious, so what does the bachelor button look like? Um, sometimes they're called cornflower. Oh, right, blue. The most popular color is the blue. Yeah, yeah. okay. So they literally grow in ditches on the side of the road in certain parts <laughs> oh, of the country. But you can get them <laughs> in a beautiful array of colors, and they're really pretty, and they have no flavor or scent, which makes them really versatile. <laughs> That's truly a bachelor, then. No flavor, no scent. <laughs> growing in a ditch. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, well, for a moment, I thought you were going to say dandelion, so... <laughs> No, although there are heirloom varieties of dandelions that are beautiful and actually taste good. There are like really really pretty ones with pink centers and white edges. Oh, wow. Uh, And dandelions are, you know, the bees' first food in spring. Really? Oh, boy. It's really important, actually, to keep dandelions in your yard. I have so much more respect for my neighbors. (laughs) 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 All right. So how did this turn into Simple Goodness Sisters? Sure. So we got kind of a reputation for what we were doing. All right. Wait, Venice's turn. Venice, tell me how this came to fruition. (laughs) Mom. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) Simple Goodness Sisters uh, really started when I went to my first event in Enumclaw with Belinda. Um, It was like at the very beginning of Happy Camper Cocktail Company. And so it's at that point in your business where you're like asking all of your friends and family to help. And so Belinda needed a bar back. And so I was like, I, I could definitely haul ice and good at hauling things. 
And so, um, so I was at the event hauling ice, and what I kept hearing from the people that were drinking the drinks that she was serving at the at the event was that this is a fantastic drink. It's really, really good. And then, of course, everybody wants the recipe, right? Like, how do I make this at home? And in this particular case, she uses uh, rhubarb vanilla bean simple syrup. And so what most people want when they're looking for a cocktail recipe is something that they can just mix up fairly easily and drink, right? They don't, do not want to get out a pot and a pan and sugar and heat up water. And so Belinda would start to describe that process because she's very thorough. And you could instantly tell that people were not going to make this drink at home. It's called like, simple syrup. <laughs> it's called simple syrup. What else do you want it to be called? <laughs> Yeah, which turns out is not simple enough for most people. <laughs> and so, and and in this particular syrup, it's, you know, rhubarb, which you can't find year-round, so it's fairly seasonal. Um, and then it uses a whole vanilla bean, and you have to scrape the vanilla bean. And so it is a multi-step process. And so I got to thinking, like, we're already making this. We're very good at making it. I grow a lot of rhubarb. And so maybe what we should do is bottle the syrup for them. Um, ah. And then they can go home and they can add whatever liquor or, you know, other flavors that they want to on top of it. But we'll take the hard part and we'll make that easy. And so I kind of bugged Belinda uh, and it was like, hey, you know what you should do? It's much like a, bar- a really popular barbecue joint bottles their secret sauce. Right. This has basically become your secret sauce and we should bottle it and we should sell it. And it honestly, she was like, I just started a company. Like, this is my like first year in and you're going to try to get me to open a brand new one. So it took a little bit of convincing and in true Belinda fashion, she was like, well, I'm going to need some numbers. I'm going to need like, wow, that's a Microsoft background, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) Which is funny because I worked in tech too. So, but we are, we have very, very different personalities. So I put together a lovely Excel and honestly, I pulled almost everything out of my, you know, where Uh, (laughs) handed it over to her and she's like, Okay, sure, let's do this. And so we started down the process of basically creating what's called in the farm world a value-added product. So taking a raw right, yeah. like herbs, turning it into something different um, that adds value to the farm, and then selling that. So that's how we get from the garden to the glass, as we call it. Oh, wow. So this is Simple Goodness Sisters. You have a variety of products. Uh, they, they for, for, they're all edible. They're comestibles. They're uh, accruchements, right? Tell me about the uh, portfolio of Simple Goodness Sisters. Yeah, we have uh, different... Oh, go ahead. Belinda, you can talk about this because you use them the most. Okay. Yeah. So I have, we have five different flavors that are available year-round, and then we have some seasonal flavors. And the most popular seasonal flavor so far has been Huckleberry Spruce Tip. It's very good and very seasonal. Spruce tips only emerging in like a two-week window in Washington State. And then the huckleberries are all going to be actually like hand-forged mountain huckleberries. Huckleberry is a berry that can't really be um, cultivated on a like a farm scale. It has to be grown wild. So we actually have a foraging network that gets those for us. Oh, wow. So that's a very popular one. And then we have our five kind of tried-and-true syrups that are available our berry sage. We grow sage incredibly well. It's the size of school buses. So wow. we needed to come up with a flavor that would really use the sage a lot more than our other flavor that uses it. So we put it on its own with berry sage. And that one um, has this really nice, like, sweet, tart, 
and then that kind of earthiness of sage. What we try to do with the syrups in general is all of them are multi-note, so you have layers in your drink. And the reason we did that is when we started with Happy Camper Cocktails, we didn't have a liquor license. So we would arrive on site with no idea what kind of booze we were getting. So oh, I see. as much effort as we put into these really fresh juices and these delicious syrups, we might end up with a, like a cheap liquor. And so we figured to make this easy on our clients, our menu is going to be only one spirit base. And then we're going to add all of the goodness in with our mixers. So that's why each of the syrups is pretty complex. The idea is that you can Got make it. a really good cocktail without needing three liqueurs in your home bar. Right. So, yeah. So we have the berry sage, and then we have lemon herb, which, again, we have this huge perennial herb field right now. So we just threw them all in there together, but we layer them, and we let them come through in different kind of volumes. All right. Hold on. Um, so let me guess. We have, you said berry sage. You have... Um, uh, rhubarb, vanilla bean, and huckleberry spruce fest. So hold, you talk about 11-1. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Simple Goodness Sisters and some of the great products they have to enhance your lifestyle. <laughs> Stick around, folks. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Tune it in and turn it up. Cruise home with Kirby. The Kirby Wilbur Show. Live and local. Weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, Seattle. Hey, welcome back. Time for our fourth and final segment. I've got two lovely ladies on the line. Uh, the SimpleGoodnessSisters.com. We've got, uh, if you are into making cocktails and and having a fantastic array of flavors sort of uh, tingle and enhance your experience. <laughs> I don't know about the tingle part. But maybe uh, I've got Venice and uh, Belinda, two sisters separated by um, three years of high school. And they were chatting about one lives on a farm and others an ex-Microsofty with a bent for cocktails. <laughs> Belinda, you love cocktailing. And you did you actually formulate these, um, these mixes yourself? Did you have an idea? Did you see something? something on the shelf that you wanted to take a riff on. Tell me how you came up with Berry Sage and uh, Huckleberry Spruce Tip. Yeah, so each one has a pretty unique origin story, so I won't go too into all of them, but some of them were already on our menu for Happy Camper Cocktails and were just really popular and we knew they needed to be made. And so, like, rhubarb vanilla um, fits into that category and so does blueberry lavender. That was like a ah. smash hit for the summer of 2018. So we was, decided, okay, let's put it in a bottle. Was it called so a blueberry lavender smash? Uh, we do it as a smash on our menu. Yeah, we do <laughs> right. Got it. That was so if fun. it got a big enough like response at events, we have the benefit of testing to like 10,000 clients a summer or whatever through the cocktail company and then we can roll it out in a bottle through Simple Goodness Sisters. And then some of them were just, uh, we want to do something fun that really highlights Pacific Northwestern ingredients, and that's like what Huckleberry Spruce Tip was. We actually have cousins who grew up in Alaska, and they grew up making spruce tip syrup. And we were trying to find something that would have an herbaceous component to pair with huckleberries, because we grew up foraging for huckleberries with our grandparents. And so we wanted to um, add that other layer, that other note that our company has become known for. None of them are single-note spirits. They all have multiple flavors. Mm. So with that, we were like, Huckleberry Spruce Tip, let's try it. And then it was great. 
So it stayed. <laughs> well, my chef used to make uh, Douglas fir syrup, and this is little free spruce tips. I think Douglas, it's kind of the same kind of process. You got that herbaceousness, the menthol, the mint, um, the uh, pyrazinic notes. You were talking about a lemon something before I had to go to break. Tell me about the lemon. Yeah, the lemon herb is one where we wanted something for folks who didn't like uh, as sweet of cocktails. Uh, if you're more into like a gin and tonic, you want mm. something a little more like dry, a little bit more tart. I'm a very citrus-forward drinker. I love that, like, tart, dry kind of profile. I drink a lot of white wine and a lot of gin. And so <laughs> I wanted something to with that. So that's where lemon herb came from. All right, and lemon herb. It's like a lemon herb butter. Actually, and yeah. are these are these sem- are they dry or are they actually sweet? So they are sweet, but our bricks level on the other syrups is around 50, and our bricks level on the lemon herb is 30. So right. it's a much less so I'm imagining you've got everything has acid, everything has sweetness, and then everything has the complexity of a fruit, and then perhaps an herbaceous note. That's exactly it. Yep. Boom shakalaka! All right, so you, you said. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do, that, do we have all you wanna, five? You want to sell some syrup? I will. I think I am right now. We'll get you. Hopefully, we we'll get you in the studio yeah. sometime. It'll be fun to meet and, and actually see the product in hand and and taste and and make some cocktails and. Uh, I think this will be Belinda because Belinda says she like drinks a lot of gin and wine. Is that right, Venice? You're not coming up. <laughs> no, I have the sweet tooth. So where Belinda like blends. I mean, I love lemon herb, and part of the reason I love lemon herb is because I'm a very proud farmer, and lemon herb has four different herbs, and I grew all of them uh, and grow all of them. So I love that, and I love being able to taste something that I put a lot of hard work into. Um, but my, I think my personal favorite is probably the blueberry lavender Mm. because i love blueberries and lavender is my favorite scent Mm -hmm. um and i pair that with like a lot of wine juice because even though i had the sweet tooth i still really like the sourness um but where Belinda uses like half a shot of syrup i will oftentimes use a whole one because i like the sweet (laughs) (laughs) i thought you were gonna say half a shot of booze (laughs) wait a minute Oh, no. Not even close. No. Okay. All right. We're running out of time here. So tell me about a website and what's the what's the cost of some of these fantastic Simple Goodness Sisters products? Well, we have a couple different sizes, and then there's some gift backs. But the kind of base price that we have is sixteen dollars online. The website is simplegoodnesssisters.com, and then you just go to shop. And we actually came out with a couple of new products too. So we're trying to figure out all the ways to use what we're growing. And one of them we came up with is salt and sugar rims that feature our edible flowers. They're completely beautiful. They add this really gorgeous color and texture to the glass. And they don't actually taste like flowers. They just taste like the salt or the sugar. So they're really versatile too. Is it salt or sugar or are they a blend? No, it's uh, either or. So okay. We actually use uh, like a you know a coarse salt like you would do for a margarita, sure. and then the sugar rim you can do on lemon drops, on uh, sidecars, whatever you want. Fun, excellent. Simplegoodnesssisters dot com, and you've got a host of uh, you, you have the five syrups, and now you've got a couple salts and sugars. Now, are the edible flowers dried and pulverized or something? Yep, that's exactly yes. it. And Look the, at me. We also have recipe books too. <laughs> so sometimes people are like. Love these. Want to use them in every cocktail I make. How do I make these other things? I need to see you. I will check out the recipes on simplegoodnesssisters.com. Venice, Belinda, hey, what a treat. Thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio, and best of luck this season. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we'll see you in studio when all this is over so we can taste and smile in front of each other. Hey, folks, when you're out and about, uh, remember, life is always better with a designated driver. Cheers.